0: Most of our senses have organs attached to them. Now that sounds pretty obvious, but you're thinking of the five senses, right? Smell, touch, taste, seeing, hearing. Is that all of them? Uh, They all have some association with uh, one organ or another that we're getting inputs from the world around us, and then those are interpreted by the brain. Now there's a lot that goes into all of this, and I'm simplifying it just to use those words, but let's move forward. Not all of our senses are directly tied to organs. We have many more sentences, and I want to talk about one of them right now our sense of time. Now, uh, for example, our sense of time is most likely triangulated through many of our different senses through our vision, through our uh, sense of, of feeling w- within our own body, like our hunger. A lot of our senses of of how much time has passed has to do with uh, what we feel at the time. Okay, so for example, you might feel like you can tell me exactly when an hour has passed or exactly when five minutes has passed. For the most part, if you're really paying attention, that could be true. But what you're doing is constantly comparing that time against things that have happened, and your now sort of hardwired notion of how much stuff happens within a certain amount of time. But we also know that the perception of time can be quite flexible. Any kid who's been really excited on Christmas Eve and uh, tried to go to sleep because knowing that there's you know presents and fun in the morning knows that time stretches out before you like an endless horizon. Uh, The first time that I really learned the length of a minute was when I was running for the first time. When I was age 25 and I decided to do the Couch to 5K program and you start out by walking for a minute, I'm sorry, walking for four minutes and then running for one minute and doing that cycle over and over again. Looking at my stopwatch while I was running and realizing that, oh my God, I had 30 more seconds to run was absolutely painful to me. So when you really pay attention, you do have a sense of how much time has passed. And if I sit here to myself and hum the album Revolver by the Beatles to myself, I could tell you about when 45 minutes has passed. But that's an interesting aspect here because, see, music takes place in time. Music is hearing something in time. As a matter of fact, music tends to stamp out time. It tends to go with the time, to be well-timed and having a sense of rhythm with what kind of time is passing so that's one sort of way again that we can perceive time is rhythmically stories can take place in time you can sit down and i can sit and tell you a story But what's amazing is I can make these big cognitive leaps in the stories, where the characters go to sleep and wake up, where the characters age ten years, where the characters spend all night lying awake in bed and it feels drudgerous because they're waiting for Christmas the next day, but that part of the story only lasts about four seconds. There's any amount of flexibility within telling a story that doesn't quite happen in listening to music. The amount of time you spend making a painting does not translate to the time it takes to look at a painting. The amount of time it takes to write a story does not translate to the amount of time that it takes to read that story. Now this sounds really boring to you right now. What I'm trying to show you is that our perception of time is molded through lots of different senses. And if you are to go into a pitch dark cave, if you're stranded in a cave underground where there is no light, there is no night and day cycle, You will lose track of time very quickly. We know this because this has happened. Uh, There have been researchers who have um, studied this phenomenon themselves, and there have been people who have been stranded in caverns, and uh, they've come out saying, well, I think about three days has passed, and they feel like they kept really close track of how much time has passed, but in actuality it had been something more like ten days. And scientists who have isolated themselves in these uh, caverns for research purposes have found that their sense of circadian rhythm of when they should be awake and when they should go to sleep completely gets discombobulated by a lack of light. So we do have a sense of time, but it is advised by many other things. Where am I trying to go with this is that we have this notion of common sense and the words common sense get thrown around all the time when we start talking about big global matters or political matters or political candidates or products that you should buy or ways you should spend your time or money we start addressing this notion of common sense what everyone should know and we feel like our common sense is a nice sort of measuring stick for how we should experience and process the world around us. Now, for the most parts, we are all very confident in what we believe we know. We all feel quite comfortable, because what we know has gotten us to wherever we are, and we tend to be somewhat uh, content with the way things we are, at least accepting of the way things are, and we feel like what we know has managed to get us there, but in many cases, how we've gotten there has actually advised what it is we know. Now, I don't want to continue doing flips all the time on this, but when we look backwards and we look at uh, things through hindsight, we look at how we feel like things played out, we get a sense of, oh, it had to be this way. We get a sense of we did exactly the right thing at exactly the right time. And that sense comes from seeing the way that things go together linearly. And of course, they would have worked out differently had you made different decisions. They would have worked out differently if there were different laws or different rules or different pay structures or whatever it is. And yet, it seems like things have padded themselves out one by one. And our common sense tells us just to accept this. And again, this is evolution, making sure that you are filtering out. All of these other possibilities and all these other ways that things can be so that you can manage yourself in the present moment most of our judgments are perfectly normal and perfectly useful most of the time we feel very justified in using the very first impression that comes to our mind and accepting it as the way things are or even the way things should be but this is really an emotional reaction. And this is an emotional reaction that does not take a lot of calculation on your part. And most people do not want to access what it takes to do calculation. So for example, uh, if we're coming up to... Uh, we're, we're, I'm driving you home one night and we come up to an intersection and I say, do we go right or left? Chances are, without even thinking about it, you'll say left. And that will be the correct direction to go. But chances are on that same car ride if I say to you what's 27 times 48 it's gonna stick in your tracks maybe you've worked out 27 times 48 before but it's not immediately available to you and what you have to do is slow down and start thinking with a different process than the one that comes straight up at you there's lots of different ways to refer to this the way that we know something right up front and immediately And the way that other things take time to calculate out and figure out. One way that I've used in the past is talking about our left brain narrator, the part of our brain that makes sense out of all the inputs and experiences that we're having and gives it voice. And uh, then the slower part is the the right brain experiencer or thinker that is taking all of this stuff in and uh, essentially spinning it Um, from raw materials into something useful and then that something useful is processed into what we see as our sort of daily experience from the left brain narrator. Now, that's a big mouthful. So we're gonna go with a little bit more of what cognitive scientists go with which is System 1 and System 2. System 1 is that immediate self that exists on the surface, that immediate self that responds to inputs, that's using your senses and that's using your voice. It's a little sort of radar system inside your brain that you think of as you most of the time. It is the you that holds within it, among other things, this notion of common sense. You have a much more powerful part of you that is system two. System two is this very intelligent part of your brain that can do mathematics, that can figure things out, that can uh, uh, untwist Um, A ball of Christmas lights after it's been in storage all summer long. This is the part of you that has to slow down and anchor itself and deal with things. This part of you is not brought out all the time because it uses more energy and because your evolution has come to rely on System 1 very, very much. Now, System 1 is amazing. You can teach it all sorts of things. You learn how to walk through System 2, but then System 2 teaches System 1 so that you don't have to think while you're walking. It just does. Something a little bit more recent to your memory might be learning how to drive. When you are first learning how to drive, it is mentally exhausting. You are paying attention to everything around you in ways that you never thought you had to before. You are seeing things you've never seen before. You are conscious of directions in ways you've never have been before. You are conscious of personal space in a way you never have been before, of acceleration, of movement, of um, all sorts of systems that are brand new. And it's a little bit overwhelming, though exciting. And that excitement can uh, wire uh, your brain in a way to sort of mask a lot of the, the sort of confusion or danger that you might be feeling for some people, for other people that just creates anxiety depends on how you're made i guess so then eventually your neocortex is able to hardwire driving into system one you do it enough you become familiar enough with it and it becomes something that is somewhat involuntary you can just drive the way you can just walk you're not thinking about it you're driving you're thinking about something else as a matter of fact and before you know it you're all the way to work you're parking in your parking spot and you're going Whoa, I hardly remember getting out of bed this morning, much less driving here. How did I do that? I'm glad I didn't get in an accident. Because you spaced out and you let System 1 just take over and you didn't have to think about it. Now that's not the the safest way to behave behind the wheel, but it happens. So if somebody is really good at chess, you learn chess through System 2, but if you're around it all the time, you practice and practice and you come to know it very well, then you're able to use System 1 for most chess. So if you see a stranger playing chess, you're able to instantly see what moves they should make or instantly see how many moves it's going to take for their opponent to get them in check. And it doesn't actually take any thinking, it's instantaneous. And this isn't because your System 2 is so boss and amazing, it's because your System 1 has acclimated to the uh, chess and to a certain depth. that You don't have to think about it, you just react. We've all had this experience with different things that we know. I used to play instruments a lot and I used to play in an orchestra and what used to really weird me out is we'd be playing a piece that I knew really, really well, we'd be performing it in front of an audience and somewhere in the middle I would realize that I wasn't even looking at the music anymore. And I would start thinking to myself, whoa, how am I doing this, how am I not not screwing up and I'd be watching myself sort of perform in a way that made me sort of uh, self-conscious that I was going to somehow... Um, mismanaged this because I started imagining how many things are going on at once that I'm processing how am I not hitting the wrong notes how am I not playing at the wrong time how are we all in synchronicity and I just have to let it go so you can become sort of aware of the way that you're hardwiring yourself for different things but our hardwire for common sense is a mostly uh, practical But it becomes a fallacy when we start thinking outside of ourselves and our immediate experience. You can see this happen daily in the social world. You can see when somebody comes forward and says, hey, you know what, Roger at work has been harassing me and I need to bring this up, that all these other people at work say, hey, wait a minute, I haven't seen Roger harass you. Clearly, I would have been aware of something like this. You would have brought this up to me. This would be an issue before with Roger. And what they're doing is ignoring the subjective experiences of others and looking at their own subjective experience as if it is some sort of universal. Now, this works with things like at work when you say, Man, don't you hate it? when uh, there's no parking and then you got to go over to the second lot and then you're walking all the way in and you get here and you're a few minutes late and everybody's like, oh yeah, totally, that happens to me all the time. Because there are so many universal experiences that happen to a group of people, they can start to mistake their own subjective experience for being universal with each other's. And then when the subjective experience happens, the experience that takes some sort of um, uh, tone of secrecy, of, of individuality that someone has worked to hide and that someone else has been embarrassed by or, or whatever, then all of a sudden that your common sense reaction is to give the benefit of the doubt of the, to the person being accused because you've never seen this happen. Now, yes, I'm talking here uh, about the, the Me Too movement and how easy it is to try and discount what somebody is saying because it seems so foreign to you and and, and so unknown to you and you think that they must be doing something wrong the person who's doing the accusing so as you take this to broader and broader systems the more unreliable your own common sense is however the more your common sense can be exploited by others let's take an example like uh, something somewhat controversial like gun control I use gun control because I used to be someone who was very anti-gun control. I felt like this was uh, something that was inherent to the um, populace as a right and that you were safer uh, with, with a gun. And I believed in this, this same sort of um, common sense notion that if you have a good guy with a gun around, you're safer than if you are uh, restricting access to guns. However, As much as that feels like something true it does not play out statistically yes we've all heard of stories about good guys with guns and it's always quite wonderful and exciting and it speaks to a part of us that is very well acclimated to the notions of heroism and bravery and self-reliance And those are good notions. Those are exciting notions. Those are inspirational notions. But they are the exceptions to what usually happens. The fact is that if you are a good guy, and you are a well-trained person, and you are a safe person, and you have a gun in the house, you are less safe than someone who doesn't. Whether or not they're a good guy, whether or not they're well-trained, whether or not they're safe statistically speaking when we start talking about large numbers of things happening at once you are much less safe the instant that there is a gun around them than when there isn't quite simply you don't get shot by a gun that isn't there now this seems like it makes somewhat of, of sense when you really think about it but it's not what immediately comes to mind and people are still very apt to say yes statistically that's true but i am the exception statistically you're not the exception it seems like a wild thing to say but okay so you flip a coin you flip a coin you've got a 50-50 chance of it being heads or tails if you flip 100 coins each one of those coin flips has a 50-50 chance which means that you have just the same amount of chance of getting 100 heads as you do getting some random amount of heads and tails you have the same chance however once you apply some notion of order to what these heads and tails are, like coin number one is heads, coin number two is tails, coin number three is tails, coin number four is heads, whatever, that particular outcome where each coin has a uh, value of head or tail within a certain order, that is just as unlikely as getting everything heads. Identically. But as you start uh, looking at this stuff um, in a a, a greater and greater system, you start to see that you are hundreds of millions of times more likely to arrive at something closer to 50-50. It's just that that one makeup, that one exception, the one way that it can play out is extremely unlikely. Okay, so for example, the lottery. I buy lottery tickets right now once in a while. I only buy them when the jackpot is exceptionally high. As a matter of fact, if we are talking about um, the California uh, Super Lotto, where the tickets cost a dollar, um, I only buy tickets once the value is over four hundred million dollars. Now that's a lot, but that's the point where each individual number combination has an average value. Of more than $1 as long as no one else has that number combination. And that's why I don't buy quick picks because quick picks are run on certain algorithms that are more likely to create duplicates than a person picking their own random numbers is to have a duplicate with that number. Now, obviously, I'm way overthinking this, and all of this overthinking has never won me the lottery. And I don't make a huge point out of buying lottery tickets, but I buy a lottery ticket knowing that I won't win. I know that I won't win, but what I like is indulging that System 1 of mine into this storytelling where for that week I can imagine what I would do with my $423 million. I imagine the benevolence I would bestow upon people, I imagine the family members and friends whose debts I would pay, I imagine the good that I would do with this money, and the way that I would make myself just comfortable enough to get to travel all I wanted to, and to not have any debt, and to take out this sort of stress of money. And for that week, it's a pretty intoxicating feeling. When I get stressed out or overwhelmed, I'm able to go, ooh, but what if my lottery ticket won? And then I can indulge that System 1 Storyteller. Because System 1 loves stories. System 1 loves the anecdotal. It pays a lot of attention to anecdotal evidence because it's strong and it has to do with these sort of small circles of people that we evolved being around. So anecdotal evidence became very powerful. But as we move to larger and larger systems, it is less and less relevant what happens to the anecdotal. So we're able to look at a huge issue like gun control and see that logically, the fewer guns you have in the field, the safer you are. And this is not something controversial. This is not something that uh, can be at all argued against. This is like simple economic detail that you are safer with fewer guns. But that system one, that little storyteller in your brain, feels safer under different conditions it feels more justified it feels more liberated perhaps it feels more like itself according to its own likes and dislikes and uh, ways that it feels about itself to have a gun perhaps so this is one of these places where your common sense is not at all reliable where it's not telling you something that is sensible in a way that uh, is in harmony with the way the world actually works. And instead, you were just feeling a certain thing and feeling more comfortable. And you're being advised by that. This doesn't make you a bad person. This doesn't make you uh, a fool, necessarily. But it is foolish. It is foolish not to stop and pause and look around and consider the factual evidence that takes issue with what your common sense is telling you. To say that you are safer somewhere with more people with guns, which is an argument I've heard many, many times, is to indulge in this fantasy that the righteous gunfight should be what's saving you when you go out grocery shopping or when you go to school when you're sitting in a classroom, that you should be relying on might makes right. You should be relying on the the ancient code of duels and the ancient code of jousts that comes to us from a chivalrous age where we felt that God bestowed upon the righteous the power to win. That somehow, being surrounded by good guys packing heat is going to keep you safer than if there was, no, was fewer guns around in the first place. And the minute that that anecdotal evidence pops up and it starts getting some, some press or it starts getting shared on social media or something like that, it feels like it's contradicting uh, all of those different statistics. It feels like it's um, confirming to, to that belief that you're safer, and it does. But this is not something that is brought to you by actual calculation. This is not something that is repeatable. If you were to do a scientific study in a laboratory, say, and uh, had, you know, brought in some bad guys with guns and some good guys with guns, and then you had another room where, uh, you know, going to the other extreme um, in this laboratory where nobody was allowed to have a gun, you'd have a lot more people shot in the first room. And if you did this experiment over and over and over again, you're going to approach a lot more like 50% of the time the good guys win and 50% of the time the bad guys win. It's not going to favor the righteous. And the bad guys aren't going to know that they're bad guys in the first place. Because that's the other fallacy uh, that we fall into with common sense. That a lot of the time, your common sense is wide open to illusionary thinking and we're going to get into illusionary thinking a lot. Illusionary thinking is going to make up a lot of what we're going to talk about and it's going to be so much fun and you'll start seeing all these different ways that the people around you are dumb. But what's going to be so hard to accept is that it's not just the people around you that most of the time we are dumb. Most of the time we are ignorant. Most of the time, we are right by accident when we're right. Most of the time that we operate on our default, that we operate on our common sense, it is reliable and it's trustworthy for the experiences that we have day in and day out. Sure. But it does not translate. It does not translate to the bigger and broader world that we're trying to be a part of. So we have to examine what this illusionary thinking is. We have to examine the holes in our own knowledge. We have to examine our propensity to take the easy, comfortable way out most of the time. In my experience, it is not that people are wrong because they are evil. It is not that people are wrong because they have embraced some ideology that has misguided them it is not that people need to be taught critical thinking because they're too stupid from a a actual intelligence standpoint it's simply that they have not made a habit of accessing these tools when faced with tough decisions It is simply the experience of people falling into what is simplest and easiest at the time over and over again, which works if you're going to the store and picking up bread. But it does not work if you're sitting down and you're going to organize some rhetoric to argue for the uh, most powerful um, work of literature that was published this last year. It does not work if you're gonna sit down and organize some rhetoric about uh, what healthcare system our nation should be going with. It does not work to take the easy way out when you're gonna talk about um, big, deep matters that affect the people around you. Your system one that you most closely identify with is hell-bent on comfort and normalcy and does not want to grow and change. But your system two is powerful. And it must retrain system one to slow down at the important points, to recognize the important points to slow down and to teach system one a new way of thinking. This is what I call building a higher sense of reason. And this is why we study critical reasoning so closely and so purposefully that you do not rely on what your first instinct is when it comes to the important stuff. You have to recognize that most of the time you're wrong, and that if you're right it's by accident, and that there is much more that you don't know than that you do, and that in order to know anything, really, you have to access that deeper part of your brain that does not like to come out for exercise but eventually you can prime your thinking to do that uh, resource diving right away and to stop making those sort of like simple errors in judgment simple errors in thinking they're going to get you to waste a lot of money on lottery tickets for example there's this sort of rule of thumb that it takes 10,000 hours of practice in order for you to master something. I don't think that that's really true. Uh, 10,000 hours is a lot of hours of anything, and and for some people it may come more naturally than for others, but that's kind of what we're looking at here is we're looking at a way of organizing our mind so that you're able to stop that first impulsive answer, that first impulsive reaction, and you're able to then step back And consult the broader world of information to access, analyze, and use information around you in wise and effective ways so that you can become somebody who is more reliable and more effective and thinks a little bit more clearly than the people around you. This is a really tall order. This is a really hard thing to do because what it's doing is taking advantage of the uh, stronger tools. That evolution has given you in trying to snuff out some of the shorthand um, easygoing way that evolution wants you to sort of live your daily life but that's what what learning is about taking that step to evolve yourself instead of letting it happen by accident